The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. Hey everybody, happy Thursday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. So glad to have you with me today. It is a bit cold out there, but I am promised, promised by none other than Ben Bailey at Channel 4 that the weather is going to be better by this weekend, at least in terms of temperature. Perhaps spring is indeed on the way. We shall find out. I'm not going to hold you responsible, Ben. Don't worry. You're just the messenger. I get that. It's an imperfect science, everybody. So chill. No pun intended. All right, coming up on today's program, a couple of conversations that I had last week at the Detroit Policy Conference. One of them uh, with Mr. Neil Barkley, who has just recently taken over as the head of the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. We'll talk a little bit about, of course, Black History Month, which just wrapped up, but what we need to do to make sure that that history is part of just our shared history on a much more expansive level. We'll talk a bit about that. Also, if you have ever listened to my program, you know I like highlighting the great work that is being done by nonprofits all around our community. MCHS, Methodist Children's Home Services. It's got a tall order. They handle child abuse and neglect cases, and of course, these have been made a lot worse by the opioid crisis. We'll talk about that in just a little bit with the director there. An important conversation to be had, maybe something that you haven't thought about. So stay with us for the Craig Folly Show here on Deadline Detroit. So glad to have you with me. Should be good. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thank you very much for being with me today. We are, of course, recording this at the Detroit Regional Chamber's Detroit Policy Conference. That's why we have all the noise in the background today. But I'm very excited to have with me Neil Barkley, who is the president and CEO at the Charles Wright Museum, of course, in Midtown Detroit, part of the cultural center here in the city of Detroit. Pleasure to have you here, sir. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, this is a really exciting time for all the institutions in the Cultural Center in Detroit. We've got some real discussions taking place about how to really place-make this, make it a destination that people can utilize, not just for museums' attendance sake, but really as a center for the community and tying all these different organizations together in a way that they haven't been before. And, and for a museum like the Wright, how important is it to be part of that broader community and to have that wonderful campus that is really going to be created over the next few years? Well, I think it's a really exciting opportunity, right? Uh, the, the Wright uh, in, you know, has been around 50-something years, but to really make that formal connection, if you will, to the other institutions while maintaining our own identity, I think it's an important um, idea, and it's an exciting idea, so that people that are coming to that area really can partake of a number of different cultural assets at one time. I think it's great. Well, you know, the right was ahead of its time when it opened. Yep. Uh, it was, you know, an amazing facility when it first opened. It still is. There's some yep. terrific exhibits that have been there for a long time. Of course, you just have the opening last year in Washington, D.C. of the National mm-hmm. Black History Museum. Uh, how has that impacted what you guys are trying to do, and has it been something that's brought more attention to your to what you what your mission is? Well, I think it's brought more attention to all of the institutions like ourselves around the country. There are some hundred different uh, organizations that focus on African American history and culture in the United States. The right continues to be sort of the largest, you know, one that's not in D.C. If yeah, you yeah, will. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we continue to have a kind of leadership role in how these centers are 
developing and, and the programming, et cetera, and we hope to do more of that as time goes on. Well, I mean, one of the one of the positives for me, it seems, when you're doing something like this, and it's very similar to what happened when the Holocaust Museum opened mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C., it opened the door, it opened a lot of minds about what we should be learning when it comes yep. to history. Yep. Have you noticed that it's having an impact on attendance, on who's visiting the facility, uh, and is opening their minds to learning more of this? It seems to be. I mean, I've only been here six weeks, so I can't really talk about, you know, like a long-term trajectory. But clearly, uh, the message of how important African-American history and culture has been to American history and culture is getting out. We see not only a large, you know, uh, participation from the African-American community, but from communities uh, throughout the city. So that's great. Well, you know, I, I do want to ask, I mean, it's February 28th today, the last day of, of course, quote-unquote, Black yeah, History yeah, yeah. Month. But, you know, where are we when it comes to actually incorporating black history just into our collective history? You start seeing a lot of people really pushing more and more, saying, look, this needs to be included in every agenda. This isn't just a, a, a side thing or a niche thing. It's not shouldn't be its own independent field of study. It should just be a part of our American shared history. Where are we when it comes to that that idea? Well, I mean, I think that's true as far as it goes. I mean, I think that there still is a need for organizations that can speak uh, specifically from a lived experience sure. of a culture uh, for the teaching reasons that you mentioned, but also be in a place like Detroit, because this is so much of what Detroit culture is. Uh, having an institution that's really mining that in an important way is really significant. So uh, I do think, though, that... Uh, you know, over time, uh, we'll see more and more people going to culturally specific organizations. Art, you know, it's like some people think an art museum is a culturally specific destination, right? Sure. <laughs> you know, so it just it just varies to how people look at the work, but I think they're all needed, and they all play an important role in giving you kind of a holistic sense of a culture and of a place and of a city. I, you know, again, six weeks. Congratulations, <laughs> by the way. Thank you. Six weeks. Uh, but but the Wright Museum um, has had its challenges over the course yep. of the years. Uh, fits and starts. Yep. The facility is absolutely beautiful. Yep. Uh, talk about what attracted you to this job, this particular facility. Sure. Um, you know, I'm a museum guy. I've been in museum and performing arts centers. I've worked in that sector all, my whole life. Uh, and I think the Wright is iconic in the United States in terms of you know, for a long time having been the biggest and sort of uh, one that uh, many institutions have emulated. When I built the August Wilson Center for Pittsburgh, I'm the founding president of that organization. We used to write as one of our models in terms of trying to think about, <coughs> excuse me, how we wanted to structure that institution. So um, I think that, you know, the, the notion, the idea of resources and lack thereof, you know, this is a problem and, and um, the museum sector in general, but certainly in culturally specific organizations. They just have not historically been resourced the same way that these larger institutions have, which means that we have some of the vicissitudes that you talk about um, that come from just not having the resources that we need to maintain the quality that we know we want to. Well, we'll talk a little bit about <coughs> what you see as the future for this organization, and it's a big question, I realize mm -hmm. that. But when you talk about sort of you know, culture-specific institutions. How do you, how do you uh, broaden again uh, the appeal, uh, the audience, and, and what kinds of things do you need to do experientially as a museum in general these days that are going to keep people's attention? Well, I mean, you know, we're an organization that's, that that uh, focuses on a specific culture. That's not to suggest that other cultures would not find 
things of interest within those stories and that storyline. Sure. So I think it's incumbent upon us to, you know, tell the stories in a compelling way, to use, you know, the most uh, current methods to tell those stories, whether technology or interactive or those kinds of things. But um, I do think that um, if told right, you know, it's just like when you hear any kind of story about any person or people, story's either interesting or it's not, right? And I think the story of African-Americans in, in the United States is an extremely compelling and interesting story, regardless of if that's your culture that you come from. And I think uh, when people begin to listen and think about it, that they will also find resonance in their own lived experience as well. Well, Neil Barkley, we wish you nothing but success. The Thank Wright you. Museum is an incredibly important institution in our community. We welcome you here. Thank you. And uh, we wish you nothing, nothing but the best. It's great to be here. All Absolutely. Right. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. The Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor, and The Trip, wise relationship advice with hosts Megan Slattery and Tracy Evans. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thank you very much for being with me today. Of course, we are at the Detroit Policy Conference, hosted by the Detroit Regional Chamber at the Motor City Casino today. And one of the things that I like to do when I'm at conferences like this is just grab anybody uh, that is doing cool and important work in the city of Detroit, in the region, talk to them about what they're doing, what challenges they're facing, what they need from society in general to make their mission a little bit easier and more successful. And I'm really excited to have joining me right now Kevin Roach, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Methodist Children's Home Society. Kevin, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Yeah, thank you so much, Greg, for having us on the show. We're excited to be here. Well, and, and one of the first things I, I like to give people an opportunity to tell people exactly what it is you do, because with a name like Methodist Children's Home Society, Doesn't people think it's much. focused just on children. It's not. Your mission goes well beyond that. You got it in that case. And so we generally call ourselves MCHS, and we're actually located a mile uh, west of Detroit, but certainly serve most of the Detroit uh, region. Uh, really focus on the ideals of uh, child abuse and neglect, uh, foster care and adoption services, residential care. And so with 80 uh, acres on our campus, uh, 130 employees, um, we've been around for 102 years. Wow. And we're excited as we're moving forward uh, into the city of Detroit, which is the first time for us. And it was important for us just to be a part of the challenges and the excitement and the growth that the city is certainly uh, embarking on. Well, you know, and how much, how important is it that you have close access to the people that you're serving and the families that you're serving? Because that, that seems to be a big part of it. You can't be too far away because, you know, there are so many different issues that people are facing when they're dealing with separation in, in certain situations that you have to deal with. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Craig, that sometimes is lost on just uh, a lot of the nonprofit organizations on that end is how accessible are we? How can people find us? Uh, how, when we are working with the families, let's work with them in the communities that they're uh, a part of in that case because at the end of the day, we don't want to serve any family or any child any longer than we have to. And a part of that is making sure that when they are ready to be in that community, uh, they can make that transition successfully. But if we're actually a part of it, uh, that transition is a lot easier on that end. Yeah. This is work that, frankly, is falling on fewer and fewer organizations. Um, it's, it's difficult work. 
there has been some contraction in terms of, of people that are offering these kinds of services. Talk about what the need is out there right now, because I, I think it's something that as long as your family's not affected, people sort of sweep this under the rug. Uh, I think it's a, you're right on point of what you just said there, Craig. It is an unsettling time. It's a very uncertain time, not just for the human service sector as a whole, and certainly some of the challenges we face, just even from the administration, uh, not to get too political on that end, but certainly uh, when we talk about the issues uh, that we're dealing with and strengthening families, making communities stronger, fewer and fewer nonprofit organizations have the ability to do that. Uh, and with fewer resources to do that, but at the same time, to the second point of your question, Craig, uh, we know that that need is getting bigger and bigger. And so what do you do in those particular cases is certainly a challenge that uh, we're facing on a pretty regular basis, but certainly with the support of the community and things along those lines, uh, we're making it happen. Well, you know, you talk about the need becoming greater, and this is, isn't something I really thought about until you and I sat down just a couple of minutes ago, is, is, is the role that the opioid epidemic is playing when it comes to issues like child abuse, child neglect, um, how that's really not just impacting those who maybe are fighting the addiction, but the families of those that are dealing with that addiction. What has that done in terms of your caseload, in terms of the number of children that are needing some sort of intervention? Yeah, we talk, uh, we've certainly seen those headlines crop up uh, in certainly the last couple of years of just really the devastating impact of the opiate crisis and really the number of lives that have been lost. Uh, over 70,000 Americans just last year and that's a number that seems to be growing. But what about all those children that are impacted by those uh, situations and all the family members? That's 70,000 and that's a multiplier across the board and it's the number one reason why children today are entering the foster care system uh, by far. It's the number one reason why foster care numbers have gone up and not down. It's the number one reason why children are being removed from their homes on that case and so certainly we knew that when we were talking about child abuse prevention, and that's a new area that we've been working on. That's tied in with the opiate epidemic in that case. If we want to prevent child abuse and neglect, like many other things, we have to really have a serious, thoughtful, uh, deliberate plan of action beyond just conversation, beyond just words, to actually deal with uh, this opiate crisis. You know, but there, there has been a lot of discussion, even at the national level. The president has, has taken this on, saying that this is something we need to work out. There seems to be a lot of money and resources going towards treatment programs. Have the resources flowed to the family support programs yet, or is that something that is just coming on people's radar? I mean, it was a great step that the Trump administration certainly uh, brought up the opiate epidemic in that case, but no money was attached to it, Craig. So you can talk about a big problem, but if there's literally no resources to do anything about it, it's just talk, and talk is cheap in that case. Now, since then, we're pulling in uh, dollars from uh, other uh, uh, line items, and so that wasn't a forever premise that the administration was doing. But for a good year there, we talked about being serious about the epidemic. I was in D.C. talking with the Department of Health and Human Services Director, Tom Price at the time, was no longer there. Sure. And he, t he had a lot of great points about it, but literally, when nothing was allocated in the budget line item, uh, in that case, I mean, and when you continue to fight over some of those things and then that gets pushed aside for many other things, once again, we're not tackling this as serious. If we literally had any other issue that was killing 70,000 Americans, 72,000 last year, I think there'd be a lot more conversation about it. But again, it. there's the ripple effect from that, too. Uh, and again, and even if somebody's life isn't lost, their life is disrupted if they're dealing with addiction. And it creates, again, that ripple effect on the entire family that's dealing yeah. with it. Um, 
You it know, seems at that the, if the federal money's not there, the state money's not necessarily going to be there for these programs. Municipalities aren't in a position. So what does that do for your fundraising efforts, and, and are you able to message successfully around that? You got it. And so that's where the nonprofit uh, world really steps in and has to take a more concerted effort. And now that there are more private and public partnerships happening and more dollars are eventually flowing in to really seriously tackle this issue, once again, now I think uh, beyond just having that conversation, we're ready to move forward. And that has helped uh, for nonprofits to really, uh, once again, rally around uh, this central issue, because at the end of the day, uh, as I was going to say earlier, we know we're going to pay for it now, uh, we're going to pay for it later on that end. So, so you know, you're here at the Detroit Policy Conference today. You know, for an organization like yours, what's the importance of being here? Getting on people's radar, obviously, is a big deal. And public-private partnerships, corporate support, all these sorts of things. Uh, is, is there a goal for you at, at an event like this today? Is it just about getting the word out, or is it about something else? No, it's certainly about really connecting with our uh, elected officials, uh, making this a priority issue that it really deserves. When we talk about just, once again, the opiate epidemic or issues related to substance abuse or, of course, uh, safe families, safe communities, that's a central message that we can all rally around. And certainly through the morning, uh, a lot of the speeches and conversations uh, certainly at the core of what we're talking about, economic revitalization, more jobs being created, better school systems. Then today we're just talking about safe families, safe communities, stronger families, thriving communities. You know, I have to ask this question, and we'll sort of wrap up with this, but you know, when I worked at the Land Bank for a while, our goal was, hey, we want to work ourselves out of a job. That means <laughs> that we've eliminated blight, we've done all this sort of thing. You sort of operate under the same premise that you know, if, if everybody comes together the right way, better job training, better family support, that organizations like yours won't be in that same business for too long. Amen to that, uh, Craig. Absolutely. At the end of the day, we're uh, trying to create uh, and help implement change on a much larger level than just on the uh, small work that we do by developing and cultivating those partnerships so that there is a day that families will have a place to turn to, kids will feel safe, uh, all the surrounding ancillary issues that impact abuse and neglect will go away and uh, once again we'll be out of a job. So what can somebody who's listening to this right now do that's actually going to support you and your mission? I think the big thing that they can do really is have those conversations with our legislators. Uh, certainly there's a lot of good work that we do as an organization and there's a lot of good organizations that are out there doing it. But we got to make this a priority, and that's kind of the time that I spend in Detroit and in Lansing, is really trying to connect with our lawmakers to say, this has got to be uh, front and center uh, in terms of developing and making families safe. And at the end of the day, when we boil down abuse and neglect, or issues of poverty, or food, in, uh, food insecurity, or opiate epidemic, all that gets around to making that family unit as safe and as stable as possible. Well, Kevin Roach, we certainly appreciate the work you're doing. My guest has been Kevin Roach, Chief Executive Officer of the Methodist Children's Home Society, MCHS. Pleasure to meet you, sir, and please keep up the good work, and hopefully we won't have to do it that much longer. Yeah, thanks a lot, Craig, for your time and bringing attention to this important issue. All right, this is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. I really do appreciate you checking out the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit for this Thursday. Hope you enjoyed the program. Reminder, we have another program tomorrow, but it is Friday. We've changed things up a little bit. You know, we had an internal discussion here at Deadline Detroit, and we decided that, you know what, everybody's already in a good mood on a Friday, so we're moving the Follies, formerly the Friday Follies, to Mondays. 
So Monday is the day that we're going to have fun with the Friday Follies. So tomorrow, I'll have some conversations. One of the conversations I plan to have is with my friend Nick Schreck. He, of course, is an environmental law expert. Ohio recently granted Lake Erie a unique status within the law, allowing citizens to sue on behalf of the lake to protect it from pollution. What can we learn from Ohio? Is this a good strategy? Is this something that's going to pass constitutional muster? We'll talk a bit about that on the program tomorrow, so make sure you tune in for that. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Have a fantastic afternoon and evening and all that good stuff. We'll talk tomorrow. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services.